trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. This is where wrong thinkers of every stripe gather to, uh, well, just celebrate the fact that reality still exists and it's something that we would like to remain attached to. Now, I hope you understand that isn't condemning everybody else as well. You know, they're all, uh, you know, they're less than us somehow. They're not. They're not. They, they do perhaps lack some perspective. OK, I'm being diplomatic here, but we all have at some point or another. So I just I want to clarify. I don't want to make it sound like I'm passing judgment on everybody who doesn't care about uh, this topic or that topic. Um, You know, we're all at different places in our quest to to really understand the world around us. But it's a pretty safe bet that if you are uh, if you're the kind of person who resonates with the message of uh, personal liberty, of conscience, the sacred freedom of conscience, freedom of association. If if you resonate with the idea of free market economics as a way of creating value, of of creating a better standard of living for everybody, and rewarding those who create value, yeah, you're at home. If you believe par- private property matters, and is something that ought not be tampered with, and that government therefore should be limited in its scope and its primary focus, job one. Not to keep us safe, but to keep us free, to make sure that our inalienable rights are always being looked after and guaranteed. Now, I realize these are lofty ideals, and hey, even there's sometimes I think, man, was it, was it ever really possible? But the fact remains, there were times in particularly American history where we lived with a greater amount of freedom. And in some ways, there were challenges. For instance, I don't know very many people who would want to go back to, you know, the, the 19th century, for instance. Mid-19th to late 19th century, a lot of changes happened. Railroads and the settling of the country and the movement west and everything. But, you know, the best part about that time period, notwithstanding the Indian Wars and, you know, the various uh, unpleasantness that took place so about the 1860s, most people had very little interaction with government in their lives. And that was for good reason. Whatever government did exist was very strictly limited. It was primarily concerned with making sure that uh, that their rights were being protected. So systems of law, systems of courts and or court systems, etc. It it was a chance to if if someone was harmed, if there was measurable provable harm to a person or their property, you could seek recourse and that's what the law existed to do. Now, to me, this sounds very common sense, but along the way, something changed. And we find ourselves in a situation today where, as as you're going to learn a little bit later on this hour, we are fast moving towards communism. In fact, we're vaccine mandating ourselves towards open embrace of Marxist principles, which always rest on coercion, as opposed to the principles that uh, freedom and liberty rest on. I think one of the big questions most of us have is, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this place? What I, I'm sorry, I'm not fluent in the language of Lord of the Rings, but I remember the the king as as the the battle came to their to their kingdom, 
How has it come to this? <laughs> I know I look around at what's going on and I find myself asking that um, on a pretty regular basis. Well, if you want to take in the big picture, you want to really understand how did we arrive here? You have to understand the decisions that have led us to this place. And to that end, I have an excellent piece by Anthony Davies. This is Anthony Davies of the Awards and Numbers podcast. This was published from the uh, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. It's called The Fall of the Dominoes. I'm going to skip over the first part just because um, Anthony Davies goes into some, some pretty in-depth um, economic information. Talks about inflation as to as how it's measured. Talks about where it is. I think most of us can agree uh, we're paying a lot more for stuff, so inflation is definitely on the rise. He talks about the consumer price index and what is happening in terms of monetary policy. Why is the price of beef risen or does the CPI rise, the consumer price index, because the price of beef has risen? Or it may not. You know, the, the um, what's that, the PCE? I'm sorry, I'm not seeing it. I'm, there's consumer price index. Oh, there we go. Personal consumption expenditures. I was just looking for the, the, the explanation of the acronym. PCE could, could not rise because maybe people are just buying less uh, beef and chicken. Bottom line is something is happening. It's clear. There are things happening with prices. There are things happening monetarily. Um, we are seeing some really interesting fault lines start to appear. And for those who haven't been paying attention, which I think is going to be a majority of people, they don't think in terms of monetary policy. They don't think in terms of, you know, what's uh, what's taking place other than, you know, what what's getting their attention most on, you know, what's grabbing their head, their their uh, eyeballs, the headlines that are most engaging to them. Typically, that's not economics, right? Because you have to crunch numbers and there's math involved. How could that be fun? So listen to what Anthony Davies says concerning the fall of the dominoes because he says what's happening is the latest in a sequence of dominoes that began following falling in the early 20th century now the first was the rise of progressive thought epitomized in 1909 by the publication of herbert crowley's book the promise of american life progressive americans viewed the federal government as a useful tool for achieving good rather than as the founders saw it a dangerous tool for preventing harm Now, normally, a two-party system would tend to force a compromise between the two views. But progressives coalesced in the Democratic Party. That party came to control the House, the Senate, and the White House, and subsequently began to appoint a majority of the Supreme Court. For almost 15 years, starting in 1933, we effectively ceased to have a two-party system. This was the first domino And with progressives controlling the federal government and possessing a new conception of government as a tool for good, constitutional constraints, rather, were thrown to the wind. He says progressives viewed the Constitution not as a protection from government, but as a hindrance to social engineering. Congress started down a path of enacting legislation that went well beyond its authority, as clearly defined in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And a sympathetic Supreme Court shifted its efforts from striking down unconstitutional legislation to constructing convoluted arguments as to why clearly unconstitutional legislation was, in fact, constitutional. The first falling domino, prolonged progressive control of government, led to the second, which was a weakening of constitutional constraints. 
Anthony Davies says from the progressive era forward, what the Constitution said started to matter less than what the nine justices said it meant. And the justices became adept at reading both the Constitution and legislation to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. Every time justices read meaning into words that weren't plainly there, it became easier for later justices to do the same. So we can draw a clear line from the Supreme Court's declaration that private activity on one's own property constitutes interstate commerce. Yeah, they're talking about Wickard v. Filburn, 1942. To its interpretation that a law holding state actors accountable for crimes actually made them immune from prosecution. That would be Harlow v. Fitzgerald, 1982. To redefining as a tax what Congress stated was a penalty. National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius 2012, thus ensuring the Affordable Care Act passed constitutional muster. Now, as as constitutional constraints on government began to lift, of course, the federal government grew enormously. Measured by spending, Anthony Davies says the government grew from 6% of GDP back in 1933 to almost 30% of GDP in 2021. Measured by the Code of Federal Regulations, its regulatory edicts grew from 18,000 pages in 1938 to close to 200,000 today. Prolonged progressive control of government led to a weakening of constitutional constraints, which led to Explosive growth in the size and scope of government. The third domino. Now, all of this came at a significant cost, he says. The 1933 federal budget in 2021 dollars was about $85 billion versus $6.8 trillion in 2021. Even on a per capita and inflation-adjusted basis, the federal budget today is more than 30 times what it was in 1933. And there are only two options for financing that kind of massive spending. Taxes or debt. Higher taxes are never politically popular. If politicians tax the poor and middle class, they lose voters. If they tax the rich, they lose influence in campaign donations. But borrowing is much more politically attractive. With borrowing, the the constituency most harmed can't vote the politicians out of office because it hasn't been born yet. So in an ironic nod to the founders... The way the government was able to grow so large was through taxation without representation. I'm going to come back to this and we'll finish up with a few thoughts in the next segment. But what an excellent article. You should read this for yourself. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to our sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This message is especially for my listeners who find themselves in the state of Utah. If you are in need of a mortgage, you should talk to Heather Turner's team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Reason being, it's a super hot real estate market. You know this, right? I mean, people just marvel at how quickly their homes are snapped up when they put them on the market. Now, put yourself in the buyer's shoes. That means you've got to have your financing absolutely squared away when you go shopping. You don't have time to dilly-dally. And the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes with decades of experience 
everything you need from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. And here's here's someone who understands what the borrower needs, what the lender needs, and can get it done in a timely fashion. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call 435-703-4522 or drop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm sharing this article from Anthony Davies. This is published on the American uh, the American Institute for Economic Research or AIER.org website. And isn't it interesting how he shows how uh, within just the last 100 years, certain dominoes have been falling and sparking the fall of other dominoes. And it sure feels like, you know, there's more to come. He points out that in 1933, federal debt was 40 percent of GDP. By 2021, it ballooned to more than 130 percent of GDP. And by the way, that doesn't even count unfunded liabilities like Medicare, Social Security, pension benefits that the government's promised but will not have the money to pay, including those that puts federal financial obligations somewhere between 500 and 1100 percent of GDP. Whoops. The weakening of constitutional constraints led to explosive growth in government, which led to explosive growth in the cost of government. That's your fourth domino. And the problem with debt is that lenders expect interest. Also, political opponents can use a large public debt to convince skittish voters to vote out the spendthrift party in exchange for how the fiscally prudent party, the latter of which always seems to be the party out of power. But how is a government to borrow massive amounts of money without driving interest rates through the roof? Borrow from a lender that doesn't care about how much money it earns, it, how much interest it earns, rather, because it can print all the money it wants. That would be the Federal Reserve. So today, Anthony Davies writes, the Fed is free to print as much money as it likes, subject only to political pressures. But for much of the 20th century, the Federal Reserve's printing ability was strictly limited. Prior to 1933, U.S. dollars were redeemable in gold. The gold standard constrained the Fed to printing a fixed multiple of the amount of gold the Treasury held. From 1933 to 1971, foreign governments, but not the private sector, could redeem U.S. dollars in gold. On August 15, 1971, President Nixon removed the last vestiges of the gold standard by uncoupling the dollar from gold entirely. And the uncoupling made it possible for the Federal Reserve to print as much as it liked. And so fell the fifth domino. Now, with the federal debt doubling every eight years, by the second decade of the 21st century, politicians were running out of places to borrow. Americans and foreigners continued to loan ever-increasing amounts, but the government's need to borrow started growing faster than the lender's willingness to lend. The Federal Reserve, now unconstrained by a gold standard, took up the slack as the lender of last resort. And in the early 2000s, the Fed held around $700 billion in U.S. Treasury bonds. A succession of quantitative easings following the 2008 housing crash more than tripled this number to almost $2.5 trillion. Further quantitative easings followed the COVID crisis, doubled the number again to more than $5 trillion, and the Federal Reserve is now close to eclipsing the Social Security Trust Fund as the largest holder of federal debt. Abandoning the gold standard initiated a cycle wherein the Fed's ability to monetize federal deficits led politicians to become more comfortable with deficit spending, and the more they spent, 
the more pressure it put on the Fed to monetize that spending. That cycle was the sixth domino. Are you starting to see how this all fits together? This is such a well-put-together explanation. I mean, big tip of the hat to Anthony Davies for for writing and researching and and putting this all together. It kind of helps you connect the dots, right? He says, measured in today's dollars, the federal deficit crossed the 0.5 trillion mark for the first time in 1992 and the second time in 2004. But in 2009, it blew past the trillion dollar mark for the first time, settling at a whopping one point seven trillion and then followed up with three more consecutive trillion plus years. Now, the deficit then fell back to the point zero, the zero point five trillion mark for a couple of years before surging again to one trillion in 2019, more than three trillion in 2020 and so far 2021. He says politicians of both parties have learned they can win elections by promising ever larger payouts to their voting bases and that voters have become comfortable with eye-watering deficits. Politicians have also learned that they can rely on the Fed to monetize their deficits. And that gives us the most recent falling domino, which is rising consumer prices. The past few months of consumer price index inflation between 8 and 11 percent is the price we pay for an unrestrained federal government. But hey, go yell at that unvast, unmasked person or that unvaccinated person. They're the ones who are doing you wrong, not to, not your benevolent leaders. Anthony Davies asks, yeah, why did it take so long for this last domino to fall? The Fed has been jacking up the money supply for decades, while inflation has remained in its usual 1% to 4% range. And the answer lies in financial markets. Now, he goes into a more prolonged explanation here, which I'm going to let you explore for yourself because I'm flat out against the clock. Here's some here are some takeaways. From what he has to say here, the sequence of falling dominoes began when we allowed, in fact, when it was encouraged that the federal government break out of its constitutional restraints where constitutional restraints constraints rather failed to restrain the government. Financial constraints should have held. But by decoupling money from the gold standard, we effectively removed financial constraints. And where constitutional and financial constraints failed, political constraints should have held. Voters should have found unaffordable government unacceptable. But the ability to enjoy government largesse while foisting the bill on future generations placated voters. The constraints that will hold are the laws of economics. If politicians continue to rack up multi-trillion dollar deficits, and as the Fed increasingly becomes the major source of funding for those deficits, we can expect to see persistent inflation in the 8 to 15 percent range. Now, that's not hyperinflation, but for the United States, it's unprecedented. Within the next decade or two, likely beginning with Social Security's looming insolvency, the fact that it's mathematically impossible for our government to make good on its financial obligations will become apparent. How voters react then is anyone's guess. He reminds us, prolonged progressive control of government led to a weakening of constitutional constraints, which led to explosive growth in the size and scope of federal government, and then to explosive growth in the cost of government. Explosive growth in the cost of government led to the need to abandon the gold standard, Abandoning the gold standard encouraged politicians to borrow more so that they could rely on they could now rely on the Fed to monetize their deficits. Politicians eventually borrowed so much 
that the Fed's monetary policy became a servant to politicians' fiscal policy. All of this ends with significant and sustained inflation. Anthony Davies says the sequence of falling dominoes is too far along to stop. What we can do at this point is look back at key points where we could have stopped them falling, like taking seriously the idea of a limited government and the principle of sound money, and ensure that when the dust settles, we warn future generations not to repeat those errors. But then again, he points out the founders warned us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience. If, if this strikes the right nerve, I'm, look, I'm, I'm trying to give the best information that I can because I believe there is... There is a contingent of people, and I'm probably underestimating how many people there are, but I think there's a contingent of people out there who really want to know what's happening in, in, in the most unspun, straightforward, just give me the facts, let me figure it out for myself, what it all means kind of way. In other words, you don't need someone to pre-digest whatever it is you're consuming in terms of your information and your data about the world. So hopefully I'm giving you some stuff to think about. I know we talk a lot about COVID stuff, and I do have a couple more things. I've got a great article here I'm going to share in a few moments about uh, mandating our way towards communism. I just have to laugh at this one just because it used to be really fashionable to, to, to laugh at and mock the people who were warning about an impending communist takeover. We all grew up knowing John Birch Society members who, you know, we could, they were the conspiracy theorists in a lot of people's minds. And I'll grant you. I've, I've met and I've hung out with an awful lot of John Birch Society people, and there are some who are pretty intense, you know, as far as this, this is a driving passion. I think it's less from a standpoint of, I just want to be right about the commies taking over, and more from a standpoint of, I love my country. I love my freedoms. I love, you know, free enterprise, and I don't want to see this all brought to naught. I don't want to see us forget it. So I think we owe these people an apology. If, we, if you've laughed at those who were warning about a communist takeover, eh, maybe maybe you should rethink about uh, how secure we were that, ha ha, we know what's best, and they're just a bunch of kooks. Because right now there are, there are a lot of people grabbing for power as a result of the COVID pandemic. And this is it's to be expected. It's not good. I'm not saying it's it's fine. It's not. But it's to be expected. That's that's human nature. You know, people have understood for a very long time. Machiavelli wrote the book on it. There are opportunities that come up in which crisis allows you to to make further inroads and to gain more power. And that's where we are today. I like Cheryl um, Chumley's article. This is in the Washington Times. Vaccine mandating our way merrily toward communism. She says the coronavirus is killing America, but not in the way the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Anthony Fauci, President Biden, and all the other COVID-19 vaccine pushers put out. 
In other words, not in the physical so much, in the spiritual, in the spirit. The spirit of America, she says, is being blotted and bludgeoned by an angry pro-vaccine crowd that wants to strip away an entire chunk of freedom in one coronavirus crying fell swoop, that of informed consent. Now, she says, look, yes, the coronavirus has proved fatal for some. In America, it's proven fatal for 611,791. That's according to the latest CDC figures. But in America, that's out of a total of 35.7 million cases, reported cases, cases reported to and by the CDC. And those fatalities include deaths with coronavirus, not just deaths due entirely to coronavirus. And those figures neglect any contextual observances that show, for instance, it's mostly the elderly and otherwise sickly who've died from the coronavirus. Or that specify, for example, that since people do indeed die every day, even in America, that the more important figure to focus on is excess deaths, a number that helps highlight fatalities that wouldn't have normally occurred except for this coronavirus. She says it goes to the truth factor, don't you see? It helps separate the deceptions from the, dare say, science. And speaking of science... Cheryl Chumley says it seems by the CDC's own numbers that if 1.4% of those who catch the coronavirus die from the coronavirus, then 98.26% don't. So with odds like that, it's, it's no wonder there's a reluctance to take the vaccine. No wonder some hesitate because of questions. Yet these take-the-damn-vaccine tyrants continue their tirades and the political beasts keep up their attacks. But if an individual doesn't have the right to decide whether or not to accept or refuse a medical treatment without punishment, that individual is not free. Simple as that. So look around, she says. Smell the stink of oppression. What we have here in America is a White House, a batch of political leaders, a complicit group of private businesses, and a loudmouthed faction of know-it-all medical bureaucrats who think nothing of pushing the coronavirus as a condition of free travel, as a condition of freely attending school, as a condition of free and unfettered access to certain venues, as a condition of walking about without a stupid face mask, maybe even two, who think nothing of doing all that, while at the same time insisting they're not infringing upon the individual's right to choose. She says that's fascism at its worst, at its double-speaking, propaganda-pressing worst. And she says if America's not careful... We'll soon vaccine mandate ourselves into communism. It's the only dictatorial nation. It's only the dictatorial nations, after all, with leaders who demand collectivism while attacking all things individualist that can get by with forcing citizens to take a vaccine that by the same dictatorial nation's own definition is entirely experimental. That's what emergency youth author authorization is, in essence. A phrase to describe the preliminary nature of a medical treatment that hasn't been studied for long-term effects and hasn't even been completely vetted for short-term effects and efficacy. Experimental. That's the coronavirus vaccine, all of them, in a nutshell. Of course, for those who do want to take it, have at it. That's how a free country works. But for those who don't, for whatever reason, increasingly the zealots and adherents of big government, big pharma, big business, and in general, big busybodyville, are condemning to the point of stripping freedoms or trying to strip freedoms 
from those whose primary crime is to exercise a right called informed consent. Now, thankfully, there's some medical professionals who are fighting this insanity. One said, I'm a Ph.D. experiment psychologist with 20 years of research experience analyzing data with medical researchers and doctoral students, many in epidemiology and public health. Researchers must protect participants from harm. Informed consent is critical. I am appalled. This is someone who goes by Statistics Diva about the surge of vaccine mandates. Here's what another one said. Nurse Aaron, a registered nurse whose Twitter profile also identifies her as an Army combat veteran. They are firing health care providers, standing up for their patients and themselves. The ones who believe in informed consent, bodily autonomy, and a right to choose. The same ones defending a career they love and an oath they took to do no harm. The order followers remain. Oh, that's a little chilling. Another, we have autonomy to consent to an experimental drug that has unclear scientific efficacy, safety profile, and dare I say, purpose. We aren't Truman patients with seconds to live. We are healthy citizens that have the right to think and choose for ourselves and our families. That's from patriotic trauma surgeon MD in one of 15 posts about horrors of losing informed consent. Here's another one from the same thread, from the same Twitter poster. So to fire people from their job, restrict them from education, segregate based on VAC status, all based on unclear science and perhaps even harmful science is purely unjust and, dare I say, evil. Now, she says it is evil. It's an evil thing for the powers that be and the powers who are trying to be in this country to shatter a time-honored facet of freedom that allows the individual the control of his or her personal health-related choices. It's evil because it's morally reprehensible. It's evil because it's the height of arrogance and pride. It's evil because it flies in the face of common decency and courteous regard for human life, for invisible boundaries, for individual boundaries, rather, for personal privacies. But mostly in this country, in America, it's evil because it's an attack on the nation's spirit. The spirit of this nation is floated around the idea that individuals are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that government's decidedly subservient role is to ensure those God-given liberties aren't infringed. If that's what the spirit of our nation is based on, then the coronavirus is doing far more damage to the long-term sustainability of American exceptionalism than anything else. I don't know. Maybe that's by design. She says, if this coronavirus is ultimately empowered to sub out the God-given for the government granted... The end result will be communism and collectivism. This is bigger picture stuff. She says, it's not just a vaccine mandate, folks. It's not even simply a matter of informed consent. It's the fate of the nation and the ability of the people to derive rights from God, not government, that's at stake. And in America, that is everything. See the battle for what it is and fight accordingly. This is Cheryl Chumley. I've got a link to her article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'd like to encourage you to stop by thebrianhydeshow.com. Go to my show notes. This will be the notes for August 6th, 2021. Pay close attention to my sponsors there. Especially want you to click on life-saving food. And I just want you to take a look around. I'm not saying, hey, be scared. And, and in a panic, I want you to max out your credit cards and buy as much food storage as possible. But I do want you to visit their website. I want you to see what they have to offer and ask yourself... Is this something that might be a wise thing to to act on? Maybe you just need to fill in a few holes in your existing food storage program. Maybe you feel like, you know, it's time to get started and you're worried I'm going to have to I'm going to bite off more than I can chew. Take a look at the website lifesavingfood.com and just see. We're talking 25-year shelf life, we're talking lots of different plans. I can't promise it'll solve your problems, but I will tell you that it's it's good to have options when the unexpected happens. And we live in a time where there's a lot of unexpected stuff could come up. Might not be a bad idea to, you know, hedge your bets, so to speak. It'll be great to see you supporting one of my sponsors as well. All right. couple quick items here. Um, if you have Apple products, if you have an uh, Apple phone, for instance... I don't know if you're like me, but I, I kind of got converted to Apple, oh, probably close to 15 years ago. It's been a while. And, and the reason I, I did was because they just, they flat work. Now, there's some quirky stuff here, and I know people like to hate on Apple. Well, it's all proprietary, and you have to use their stuff. And, you know, the um, at iTunes at the time, I don't know what it is now, Apple Music. Uh, very strictly controlled, you know, your your ability to, to share music back and forth. However... I'm having some buyer's remorse. I just read the article that Apple will be scanning iPhones for illegal child abuse images, sparking a privacy debate. And I know there are those who will immediately say, Brian, you know, there's if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. But again, I ask step back for a second. Don't focus just on child abuse images. Focus on the bigger picture of what really is at stake here. If millions of iPhones can be scanned without your permission, you didn't, they didn't ask for permission, you didn't give it, but they can scan it just to keep the children safe. I mean, they say they're looking for child abuse or child porn, things like this. Okay, that's one thing. But if they can scan for that, they can scan for anything. I mean, what's it going to be? Memes? If it's memes, I'm going to be in trouble. Because part of how I cope with the stress of, of watching my society crumble like a soup sandwich is I laugh and I share memes and some of the memes, well, let's just say someone would be offended. Otherwise, it's probably not a good meme. But where does it end? The idea here is, and, and by the way, it was Edward Snowden, Snowden who actually, I saw the, his tweet. He's the one who kind of broke this story, at least for my awareness. What happened to Privacy. And I guess, you know, you have the option of, well, if you don't like it, don't do business with Apple. Don't have an iPhone. Okay, fair enough. But if you don't have at least some sensation that the net is kind of closing in around us, uh, you should pay attention. It, it definitely is. All right, two quick articles here. Uh, back to school chaos. Public schools are already quarantining entire classrooms over isolated COVID cases. I'm uh, referring you to Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is just a, 
just a quick excerpt from Liberate Ed, a weekly email newspaper where Carrie McDonald brings you news and analysis on current education and parenting topics. And she says the 2021-2022 academic year began on Tuesday, July 26th for students at an Atlanta public charter school. By Thursday, school administrators told the parents two students and a staff member had tested positive for the coronavirus. And by Friday, more than 100 students were in quarantine over possible exposure. And this week, public health officials in Arizona shut down an entire fifth grade public school classroom for a week because three children tested positive for the coronavirus. Also this week, more than 160 students in an Arkansas public school district are in quarantine due to possible virus exposure just a few days after the new school year began. So while parents may have been gleeful at the prospect of schools reopening this fall for full-time in-person learning, it's becoming increasingly clear that this school year will be just as disruptive and unpredictable as the last. Frequent virus testing, ongoing social distancing in classrooms, mask mandates in many schools were enough to prompt some parents to pull their children out of public schools for other options, such as homeschooling or high-quality private virtual learning. Now the prospect of rolling quarantines throughout the year because a classmate tests positive may lead more parents to unenroll their children from a school district in favor of a calmer, more settled learning environment. Carrie says this back-to-school mayhem comes even as new data from Sweden, which never had a hard lockdown, didn't close schools, and recommended against masking, has hit zero daily COVID deaths. According to a February paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, Sweden's less alarmist approach to coping with the coronavirus didn't harm children. Despite Sweden's having kept schools and preschools open, we found a low incidence of severe COVID-19 among school children and children of preschool age during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, the researchers concluded. This reassuring data from Sweden and the mounting evidence that children continue to be spared from severe coronavirus outcomes is not preventing back-to-school time in the U.S. from becoming rocky and contentious. If anything, there is now more conflict and coercion regarding virus-related school policies. So Carrie says it's a good time to share my new free ebook with the parents in your life who may be growing uneasy about the upcoming school year. And she invites you to download the 2021 Curious Parents Guide to Education Options. I have a link to the article in the show notes at the com. It'd be worth your time to click on a couple of links and, and download that book for yourself. All right, one final note here. This is, uh, again, James Bovard knocks it out of the park. Pseudo-omniscience versus freedom. Shut up and submit is now the favorite COVID cure of some of America's leading progressives. He starts with Paul Krugman, a Nobel Prize winner, New York Times columnist who revealed on Tuesday that since freedom is a mirage, people have no good reason not to comply with endless government commands. Unfortunately, says Jim Bovard, punitive panaceas are increasingly popular among both politicians and pundits. He says Krugman breezily expunges years of Supreme Court rulings to remove any impediment to forcibly injecting 100 million Americans with an experimental vaccine. Krugman explains that when people on the right talk about freedom, what they actually mean is closer to defensive privilege, specifically the right of certain people, generally white male Christians, to do whatever they want. Blacks and Hispanics have lower rates of COVID vaccinations than whites, but the freedom of minority groups is apparently irrelevant because some Trump supporters are anti-vax loudmouths. 
And, of course, there were other progressive stalwarts who jumped on the Iron Fist bandwagon. Uh, Pundit Matthew Iglesias declared people should either take $50 for getting vaccinated now or else you get jabbed later while someone holds you down and you get $0. Nice. Washington Post columnist columnist, uh, Ruth Marcus, who previously championed legal immunity for Bush administration torturers and sneered at Americans who complained about intrusive TSA searches, calls for mandating vaccines because, in her words, it's time to stop coddling the reckless. Maximizing misery is her health prescription. The more inconvenient we make life for the unvaccinated, the better our own lives will be. Similarly, Harvard professor Joseph Allen, in writing in the Washington Post on Tuesday, scoffed, why are so many people acting like this vaccine mandate is some kind of affront to our liberties? We have a silver bullet that can end this crisis. Why are we afraid to pull the trigger? Now, Bovard goes into, into more detail here, but it's an excellent article, probably the best or at least the most clear and unsugarcoated portrayal of what attitudes are like in the nation's power centers. And his point is that freedom is rapidly being defined to connote whatever privileges remain after you submit to the latest decrees. I mean, come on, New York City just decreed vaccination passes are required for citizens to go to restaurants, gyms, and entertainment venues. In fact, in his press conference on Tuesday, Bill de Blasio said, and if you do get vaccinated and you're not around fully vaccinated people, you still have, and you're around fully vaccinated people, rather, you still have more freedom than folks who are not vaccinated. So really, it's strategic. Leading Jim Bovard to observe, did New York City voters realize at the last election that they were designating a czar who could impose unlimited restrictions on their movement through the big a- throughout the Big Apple. Yeah, Twitter followers are exalting Klugman for asserting the rhetoric of freedom is actually about privilege. But he says, unfortunately, plenty of prominent poobahs are enjoying the privilege of trying to destroy other Americans' freedom. And if you're one of those few who find yourself on the side of, hey, I'm not going to be forced... My voice is here to remind you that you are not alone. Even though you may have to stand alone at times, you're not wrong for making that stand. And you really aren't alone. So find the courage to do it. And I'll try to do the same. This is The Brian Hyde Show.